We're going to finish up Daniel. The agenda today is second half of Daniel, and then if we can do Esther, I'll be real happy, and then that sets us up pretty well for Ezra and Nehemiah, and then Chronicles to close us out right before Christmas, and then I'll kind of give like a Christmas, how the Old Testament anticipates Christmas, how the Old Testament demands a new, and uh, yeah, that we're clearly finishing on an unfinished note. So Daniel, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to do some recap, Daniel 7, then jump into Daniel 8, spend some time looking at Daniel 9 and Prophecy of the 70 Weeks, and then we'll jump into Esther. You guys come on in. Let me, let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this Christmas season where we're reminded, first and foremost, that the Lord Jesus Christ came, um, that the sovereign king of the universe took on human flesh, partake of our nature so that he, would, he could redeem um, those from the curse who are under the curse of the law. Thank you for who you are and the example we have in you. I just pray that we would look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others, as we've been learning in Philippians. Lord, I just pray for this morning as we look to um, the book of Daniel and Esther, that this would not just be a fun intellectual study, but that as we study your word, we would see you for who you are, and that we would worship you as a result of it. Bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hopefully you guys have been having as much fun going through the Old Testament as I have. It's been, it's been a real joy for me to especially look at Daniel, a book that I just hadn't spent a ton of time in um, outside, of, outside of college. So just spending a couple weeks, it was really, really good for me. Daniel 7, I wanted to kind of pick back up. If you guys remember or if you weren't here last week, I argued that Daniel 7 is kind of the center of the book, but if you understand Daniel 7, I think you can understand uh, the rest of the parts. And what you have in Daniel 7, you have this echo of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar sees in Daniel chapter 2 of the statue, and you have these various you know, materials representing various kingdoms, and we know that because it's the same thing in Daniel 7, right? And so he's working through world history. And Daniel 7, he talks about the first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. As I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. The mind of man was given to it. Sounds just like what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And so uh, the kingdom has moved from uh, the Babylonians. You move to the, the second one, a bear. The Medes and the Persians. The third one, like a leopard, you move to uh, Greece. We're going to talk more about those two today. And then you have this fourth one, this fourth beast, that he says, you know, it's exceedingly terrifying. It's different um, than all the others. It had great iron teeth. It had ten horns. He says again that it was different from all the other beasts. I considered the horns. Behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. Remember that phrase, a little one? And he has, you know, a mouth speaking great things. So you have this fourth kingdom. There's something very, very different about it. You have all these ten horns and all this stuff. And there's something unique. But then you have... Look with me, Daniel 7, verse 9. Thrones were placed, the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels with burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And we looked at how that's, you know, very, very similar language with Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel chapter 1, making the argument that Daniel and Ezekiel are seeing the same image of God seating, uh, sitting on the throne. 
And then you have, verse 11, the beast was killed, this, this little horn. And then verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, that is, this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages, another key phrase you see over and over in the book of Revelation, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you have ultimately the answer to this problem of this fourth beast is the Son of Man, that, that God is going to deal with this problem through this one who is described here in Daniel 7 like a son of man. I wanted to, you have this on your notes here, this quote usage of the term son of man. I don't think I read this last week. I wanted to read it this morning. Although the term son of man can describe one's lowly status, <clears throat> like soulmate, in Daniel 7 it describes an individual who's given the right to reign and who represents the people of God. Thus it can denote highest power or ultimate humility, a quite appropriate description of the Messiah who humbled himself to be a man so that he could also be the king of kings. If you remember in the Gospels, the, the title that Jesus uses most for himself is son of man. And I would argue he's getting that from Daniel 7, verse 13. Keep reading next paragraph there. When the Lord Jesus Christ uses the term son of man, depending on the context, humility may be in view, but in other contexts, power is clearly in view. Nonetheless, it truly is a matter of emphasis. Daniel sees one who is like a man, humbled, become great. And that is precisely what happens to the Savior. That's exactly what happens to Jesus Christ. So sometimes you'll see some commentaries do some weird things about how the Son of Man actually is not a single individual, but actually it's referring to a corporate uh, group. And I would argue, well, in context, yes, that's true, but it refers to both. That's where he talked about corporate solidarity, you know, the one representing the many. It's just like the same thing throughout um, Israel's history. You know, the king he represents the nation of Israel. And in the same way, the Son of Man represents, he's in union with his saints. And you see that throughout the rest of, of Daniel chapter 7. So, I wanted to read that. Daniel 8. Daniel 8. This is where uh, it picks back up in Hebrew. Okay, so if you remember from Daniel 2, 4, I think the second half of verse 4, it switches from uh, Hebrew, it goes to Aramaic. Here we're back in Hebrew, okay? And I think it's significant, one... Because if 2 to 7 is dealing more with like, hey, world history here, all the nations need to understand this, this is maybe more specific targeted to who? Like the Jews, right? That's kind of why it's shifting. And that's significant, I would argue, for Daniel chapter 9 when we get to the prophecy of the 70 weeks. So he shifts back over here. He has another vision. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but in chapter 8, if you have the ESV, you can even see the, the, the title there, right? Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. Okay, the ram and the goat, they weren't mentioned in chapter 7, right? Those are two new animals, okay? And so we need to ask, okay, is this, is this something new? Is he adding, you know, is he, is he talking about maybe a fifth and sixth kingdom? Or do they fit within this, you know, four beasts that we've already mentioned in chapter 7? Does that make sense? He's got two new animals. Who are we talking about here? These are good, good questions to ask. Um, if you move on, you know, this is like, um, verse 4, the ram comes. Chapter 8, verse 5, as I was concerned, behold, a male goat came from the west. I'll keep reading here, Daniel 8, verse 5. Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Okay, we've talked about horns already in chapter 7. Okay, maybe there's some similarity here. He came to the ram, 
with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Notice this verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn. Where did we already hear little horn before? Chapter 7, right? Remember at the end of chapter 7, you have chapter 7, verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, okay? That's beast number 4, okay? In chapter 7, the little horn comes out of kingdom number 4, beast number 4, okay? So maybe... We're seeing those similarities. Okay, is he talking about the same thing? And this is kind of a trick question because I'm going to show you that he's not. But he's making these links for a purpose, okay? So just, just follow with me here, okay? You jump over to uh, chapter 8. So this is chapter 8, verse 20. To this point, you're like, man, I, this vision, I, I don't understand what's going on here. And I love this. Chapter 8, verse 15, the interpretation of the vision. Oh, yes. Clarity. What is going on here, okay? So we're meant to think that this little horn that comes out of the male goat in, in some ways is similar to this little horn coming out of kingdom number four. But I want to show you he's not talking about the fourth kingdom. Look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, in Daniel 7, which kingdom is that? Not one, but the second one, right? Okay, so the ram refers to kingdom number two, and the goat is the king of Greece. Okay, that's kingdom number three. So this vision, chapter eight, fits within that context of chapter seven and those beasts and kingdoms there. Does that make sense? He's going back, okay? And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face one who understands riddles shall arise. Okay, so he's saying that out of this um, third kingdom, out of Greece, out of that kingdom, there's going to be a great king. Okay, there's going to be a bad dude, okay, to make it simple, okay, out of number three, okay. Now, I don't have a ton of time to talk about this, um, but he unpacks this more in chapters 10 and 11 and 12. This is a guy we call Antiochus Epiphanes, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes. And you're like, where is that in the Bible? Okay, it's not actually there. Um, we have a lot of it. Antiochus Epiphanes um, comes in the intertestamental period, um, comes in around 175 B.C. From, he, he's kind of like a Greek deputy state, okay? Like he kind of sets up his kingdom in Israel, okay? And he does all this wicked stuff in chapters 10 and 11, actually unpack this. He's a bad dude. He sets himself up as the ruler. He defiles the temple. Um, rumor has it, I don't, I'm not sure if Josephus records this. Mark, you might know, but he, I, he slaughters a pig um, on the altar in the, whole, in, in the temple, right? So Jews and pigs, do they go together? No, and he slaughters a pig in the temple, okay? He defiles the temple. He's a bad dude, okay? And so what I want to show is this, okay? Because if you're thinking with me, okay, Daniel 7, fourth kingdom there, 
after that, there's going to be a little horn, okay? Real big bad dude, okay? But here in chapter 8, he's saying at the end of kingdom number 3, within kingdom number 3, there's going to be a big bad dude. So is Daniel just confused? No. I would argue that he's making, some people will call this like a typological case, and I'm fine with that language. He's saying that when this prophecy comes true, okay, you've got this little bad dude, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a preview of coming attractions, okay? He's a preview of bad coming attractions, okay? He's a prefigurement of the ultimate big bad dude coming at the end of the fourth kingdom. Does that make sense? That's the argument that Daniel is making. And by the way, that's not just common if you guys are like, well, dispensationalism might say that, covenant theology. I don't know of anyone who doesn't say that. Like, that, that's just like, we read the text, and it's just like, okay, that's what he's talking about. And one of the main reasons why, even liberal scholars say this, because the prophecies of uh, 10 and 11 are so precise. And they go, oh, this has to be Antiochus Epiphanes. And so what's going on there is that you have this one guy who's going to come, you know, the ram, the goat, out of that, from the, the Greek kingdom, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's a prefigurement, bad dude, of a big, big bad dude to come at the very end of history. Does that make sense? It's complicated. It, it is intricate, but that's what Daniel is doing there. Okay, chapter 9. Chapter 9. So if you didn't get that, Antiochus, this is just my note here, Antiochus is a prefiguring of the Antichrist who is to come at the end of history. Big, big bad dude. Okay, chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so here's, here's what's going on. Daniel is reading his Bible. He's reading Jeremiah, and he's going back to Jeremiah, I think it's... Actually, I may have wrote it down here. Jeremiah 30. I think it's Jeremiah 30. But in Jeremiah, uh, we looked at this when we covered Jeremiah a long time ago. The prophet Jeremiah is saying, hey, there's going to be 70 years of exile for you. Okay? And when that's completed, I'll bring you back to the land. Okay? So Daniel is reading Jeremiah, and he's like, oh, whoa, like 70 years are almost up. Like, like the end of exile is almost up. Are we going to go back to the land? That's the setting here, okay? Will we go back to the land? Exile is almost over. Yet, if you just jump forward to verse 24, where he says 77s, or it says 70 weeks, it says 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. Now, if you're reading this, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jeremiah, by the word of the Lord, said 70 years and then end of exile. But yet, angel of the Lord here is saying, no, actually it's not 70 years, it's going to be 490. Okay? That, that's what this, the 77s are. You just do the multiplication, 490. Okay? Now, if you guys are reading this, you should, hopefully, if you're reading, go, wait a minute, is God just like adding a bunch of years? Right? Like, how can the prophecy say there's going to be 70 years, and then when the 70 years are up, no, actually what I mean is there's going to be 490. Does that make sense? Does anyone else like, hey, God, you can't do that. You can't change your word. You guys tracking with me? Okay, I'm going to argue 
That's not what's going on here in this text. He's not adding to the word. Notice, look with me. Uh, chapter 9, verse 2, it's up there on the screen. I perceived in the books, okay, plural. It's actually significant. He's not just reading Jeremiah. How do I know this? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. Uh, Daniel, he's confessing their sins, um, which, by the way, goes back a lot to Deuteronomy and a lot of language uh, that's similar there. Um, also, 1 Kings, Solomon says something really similar. But um, Daniel 9, verse 11 all Israel has transgressed, transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses. So he's going back to the, the Pentateuch, right? He's going back to the Torah, the, the first five books, and he's also reading that. He's reading in context. And so I would argue Daniel is looking to the end of exile, physical restoration, and also spiritual restoration. When all the covenant blessings, like if you remember Deuteronomy 30, right? Deuteronomy, at the end, you know, Moses is saying, hey, all these bad things are going to happen to you because you have a wicked heart, you need a circumcised heart, you need, you need, you need a heart. That, that's your problem, okay? And God is going to give you that heart, and you're also going to return to the land. It's all going to happen, okay? You need all of it. So Daniel is saying, hey, we don't just need a return to the land physically, we need the, the right covenant relationship with a new heart, okay? Daniel is saying he's looking to the end of exile and complete restoration of Israel in fulfillment of God's promises. And notice, this is where we have that quote from Peter Gentry. This is really helpful. This, remember Sky Monster? Remember I talked about Sky Monster? Any of you guys don't remember Sky Monster? Sky Monster prophecy. Sky Monster is this. If you guys are like, what are you talking about? When Sky Monster is like, behold, I am going to destroy this boat, and everyone on this boat is going to die. The boat is going to be completely destroyed. Everyone will be dead. There will not be the boat left because the sky monster is going to destroy it all. Okay, okay so sky monster comes. He takes down half the ship. He kills you know, 50 people, and one of the masts falls over, but the boat's still there. Has the prophecy been fulfilled? No, because the prophecy was it's going to be completely destroyed, and it's done forever. Okay, so Sky Monster comes back. He does the same thing. He takes down the second mass, and he kills, you know, another third of the surviving crew. Is the prophecy fulfilled? No. It's only when he finally comes back, and it's completely destroyed. Okay, so here, Peter Gentry, who, by the way, is not a dispensationalist, he's making that same point. And he's referring to Isaiah, the prophecies of Isaiah, and he says this, Isaiah indicates that the return from exile entails two separate stages. One, return from Babylon to the land of Israel, so physical restoration, but also, two, a return from covenant violation to a right relationship to God so that the covenant relationship is renewed and restored. Daniel's prayer is focused upon the physical return from Babylon, the first stage in redemption, but the angelic message and vision of the 70 weeks is focused upon the forgiveness of sins, the renewal of covenant and righteousness, the second stage in return from exile, okay? He's saying that it's not just physical restoration. Daniel 9, 24 and 27, which we're going to look at, is concerned with the very, very end. This gives us the rest of the roadmap for all of history, when God will restore his people to the land and give them a right heart. Okay, Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. I just have to pause right here because this is very, very important. 
Who is this 70 weeks for? Who is it for? His people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, and for their holy city. What, what's that? Jerusalem, okay? Before we start doing weird stuff, that's who it's for, okay? Because some, some people, they miss that part. It's actually very specific. It's for the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. I think that's Sky Monster principle in effect. All those things have not been done. One of the main reasons I was argue that is to anoint the Holy of Holies, and people skip this part. Everywhere in the Old Testament, to anoint the Holy of Holies refers to something in the temple, something physical temple related. It does not refer to a person, okay? And some people get that a little weird. It's referring to a literal temple. And so something has to happen where that temple is anointed. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So you add that up, there's a total of 69 it will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And, this is a separate guy, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be uh, war, desolations are decreed. And he, that's referring to this prince who is to come, this is bad dude, I would argue this is... Uh, little horn at the end of fourth kingdom. Little horn, little, little bad guy. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So there's that final 70th week. But in the middle of that week, so halfway through, three and a half, which is significant when we come to Revelation, he will make sacrifice and grain offering cease. On the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who, oh, it's an angel. It's poured out on the desolator. That's a different translation. I like the legacy because they make it a little more literal and wooden here. Okay, so what's going on here? So in Nehemiah chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, in 445 BC, um, Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah back to rebuild the city. Okay? I would argue this is the start of the 70-week prophecy. Okay? And by the way, another reason why we're not going to symbolize all these numbers where it's just, you know, oh, it just stands for, for something else, is think about it. When, Jeremiah, excuse me, when Daniel is reading Jeremiah, those 70 years are what? Literal years, right? Like he's just doing the math, he's looking at his calendar, and he's like, whoa, 70 years have passed. And so in context, there's no reason why we would come to this passage, 77s, and go, okay, this is actually symbolic years. Does that make sense? Like, it's actually one of the greatest arguments for a literal, if you want to say that, or um, an authorial intent interpretation of prophecy, because Daniel is just reading, oh, 70 years. What is he expecting? Oh, it means 70 years. So when we come to this, 70 sevens of years, oh, it's 490 years. And so when we count down, Mark spent a lot of time on this on a Sunday night um, a couple months ago, um, but if you start with 445, you adjust for some calendaring issues. Um, which it's actually pretty simple. Um, you, count, you count down 483 years because you have 69 weeks. You come right to when uh, Messiah comes into Jerusalem. You get really close to 30, 33 AD, somewhere in that window. 
And so, and again, this is not, I just wanted to read, sometimes, you know, you come to the text and you have, you know, presuppositions, like this is my theological system, this is how I interpret scripture. I just wanted to read Daniel just on his own terms, just like what is Daniel saying? And this is just what makes the most sense. And with that argument, the 483 years, if we just take those 69 weeks literally, again, I don't, if you're not dispensationalist, covenant theologian, wherever you are on that spectrum, it's pretty much universal that that's what that means. It's 483 years. Then they do weird stuff with the final 70th week, but we'll get to that. Anyways, so the Messiah, the Prince, is coming, right? This is one of the clearest references alongside Isaiah 53, right, the suffering servant, that the Messiah, the Prince, is going to be cut off and have nothing. That the Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, Christ, is going to be cut off, crucifixion, and he's going to have nothing, okay? And this is after, this is so key, this is after the 69th week. And here's what I want to, this is where it, it's kind of a little interesting. And maybe sometimes you're like, oh, man, I don't know about this. But I want to argue there's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. Okay? And again, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, everyone, generally speaking, argues for a gap. They just do weird things with the gap. Okay? There's a gap between the 69th week, the 483 years when Christ, the Messiah, comes and is cut off, and the end of that, the 70th week. Okay? When the people of the prince who is to come, when that prince comes and makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. You tracking with me here? It's a little complicated. Okay? So he's going to be cut off. The people of that prince, they're going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And by the way, that's exactly what happens in AD 70. Okay? The Romans come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and it's bad. Okay? That has happened. Okay? But after that, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, he, the prince who is to come, is going to make a firm covenant with many for one week. So we're still waiting for that final week. Okay, that's what I'm arguing, is that there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. In the middle of the week, he's, he'll make sacrifice and grain offerings cease. I think that's a reference back to Daniel 7. Um, this is just extra. I wasn't going to say this, but I will. Um, Daniel 7, verse 25 still talking about that little horn. He shall think to change the times and the law. He's going to mess with the Jews. He's going to mess with their temple. He's going to jack things up, okay? And so I would argue that's still in the future. Okay, now, a little bit of an excursus, but I think it's important. Because if you're like me, you're like, okay, a gap between the 69th and 70th week, that sounds a little odd. Like, how come we're just reading it Okay, sequential year, 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 but then now there's this gap between 33 AD and here we are, 2022. This is a long gap where we're still waiting for that 70th week. Is anyone else? Like, I'll be honest. Does that sound weird? Okay, seems weird. Okay, I'm, I hinted at this last week, but I want to show, just from some of these other passages in the Old Testament, that this is actually common to Old Testament prophecy. Okay, just take new creation, for example. The Old Testament all throughout hints that Messiah is going to come and he's going to restore the world. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth, okay? Well, Messiah came. Did that happen? I certainly hope we're not living in the new heavens and the new earth, right? That did not happen yet, but Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is presently at this time a new creation, right? 
So there is this kind of, sometimes you'll talk about like an already, what's true of the prophecy, but we're still waiting for that not yet, right? I just call it sky monster, right? Like partially, but we're still waiting for the complete and full fulfillment of that, okay? New covenant, okay? Hebrews, and when Christ brings about the Lord's Supper, he makes it very clear that this is the new covenant. He has brought that about, but same thing. The Old Testament prophecies talked about how when the new covenant comes, there's going to be this glorious restoration of Israel to the land. Has that happened yet? No. So there's an already aspect and also a not yet. Okay, the new exodus. You come to the New Testament and it talks about how what? Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's getting that language from exodus. But has Isaiah 11, where the Lord is going to Part the tongue of the Sea of Egypt and the Assyrians and the Egyptians are all going to come in to worship with Israel in God's land. Has that happened yet? No. So we are still awaiting that. And I would argue it's the same thing with the 70th week, okay? That there is an already aspect to some of these prophecies. Or if you remember this, this diagram of the dude, right? He's looking at these mountains. And from his perspective, he doesn't see that gap. He doesn't know when that's going to happen, but he knows that it's going to happen, okay? Now, there are some mountain peaks, right, over here that are maybe hidden, like the church, right? It's very clear when you come into the New Testament that the church was not in the Old Testament, and so there were things that the Old Testament prophets did not completely understand, but they understood, and as I've mentioned this with First Peter, right, where he talks about the prophets were looking, um, you know, the subsequent times of the Messiah when he suffers and his glories after, I think they're reading Daniel 9 and they're reading Isaiah 53 and they're looking forward to, okay, the servant is going to come, he's going to suffer and there's going to be glory afterwards. We don't know when that's going to be, but they knew what was going to happen. Does that kind of help anyone? Maybe with the gap? It's actually not that weird. It's actually kind of how Old Testament prophecy works. Okay, that's Daniel 9. I would like to spend more time, but I've already spent too much time. We have like 15 minutes. We're gonna move quickly quickly here. Okay, Daniel 10, 11, and 12 in here. You kind of have a summary of everything that's going to happen. This deals with the immediate future uh, that's going to happen between uh, this intertestamental period, right? Remember the prophets, they stopped for a while, and Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are kind of dealing with that, okay? Here's what's going to happen. Uh, He's dealing with the kingdoms of Persia and Greece, and how do I know that? Because Daniel 10, verse 20 says so. And then chapter 11 does more again. Antiochus Epiphanes is also here, yet also, I'll mention this, 11 verse 36. This is interesting. Liberals. So this is why they argue for why Daniel has to be written in 2nd century BC after all this stuff, because it's basically like he's writing history. Like it's like, wait, this corresponds way too close uh, with everything that happened, uh, you know, between like 500 BC and when Christ returns. There's no way this is written 6th century BC. But we're Christians, and we believe God knows everything, and that's not a problem for us. And actually, all the way up until the 20th century, everyone believed that. And then a bunch of Germans came along, and they were like, nope, can't be the case, okay? But they hate this passage because of that. But everyone, everyone, when you come to 11 verse 36, it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but then 36, it switches. This is little horn. This is big bad dude coming out of fourth kingdom. This is, this is Antichrist. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. And so 
everyone goes, there's a shift between 1135 and 36 that this is talking about um, Antichrist to come. And, and because we looked at Daniel 8, that's not weird. Daniel has already been saying, hey, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's a preview, a prefigurement of the Antichrist who is to come. And so Daniel makes that argument again. Chapter 12, um, I'll just mention this briefly. Chapter 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's one of the clearest passages along with Isaiah 26, 19 on physical, resurrec- physical resurrection, right? That the dead will rise again. And so we have that in Daniel chapter 12. And again, if you're like, man, Daniel's hard. Daniel's hard. Take comfort. Daniel 12, verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. That's what Daniel says, okay? So keep reading Daniel. Keep studying it. If you want some books, I have some, there's some great books and articles I was devouring these last two weeks that really helped. But I, I think Daniel is an immense comfort because it's showing, hey, here's the roadmap for all of history. God, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, they have it completely under control. And that's what eschatology is meant to do. It's not about charts, like I mentioned. It's about comfort. It comforts believers. He's sovereign over all of it. He hasn't deviated course or course corrected once, and that's comforting. Okay, Esther. Really quick. Esther. Let's say, because we're going to have like 10 minutes here. If you want, I can send you um, Abner Chow. He's one of my professors at Master's. His lecture on Esther is so good. It's hilarious, too. It's super funny because Esther has a lot of, like, dark humor in it, and it's really funny. And he talks about the book for, like, an hour and a half, and so it's really good. And don't just take my word for it. Take Timmy Collins' word for it. He knows, right? Um, so I went back and was looking over those notes. Esther, it has some funny parts, and that's okay. Like, God has a sense of humor. That's great. He has the perfect sense of humor. Um, the reason why I lumped Esther in here is because it's written like Daniel from the perspective of exile, okay? Israel, God's people, are still in exile. They're in this, um, you know, if we're going back to Daniel 7 and Daniel 2, they're in that second kingdom. Days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, to come down, the army of Persia and Media, okay? The Medes and the Persians, we're in that second kingdom, okay? And so that's the context of Esther. It's written from exile. Okay, Esther, in the book of Esther, the name of God, Yahweh, God himself does not appear in the book at all, okay? God does not appear in the book of Esther at all, okay? And for that reason, in the Reformation, it's actually one of the reasons why some people like Martin Luther doubted that it should be in the canon, Um, and I would argue, because Stephen Dempster makes the argument, and Stephen Dempster is legit, he says, if God does not appear to be active in Esther, he does not appear to be active in Genesis 37 to 50 in the succession narrative talking about 2 Samuel. He's basically saying, hey, God doesn't appear in those portions either. We don't doubt those, okay? I would argue God not being in the book of Esther is kind of the point. That's actually kind of the point. You could say, so I'm dealing with date, author, setting, purpose, setting and purpose, the victorious power of an invisible God. This question is, is God still at work even when you can't see it? Literally in the book, because you can't see him, because he's not there. Yet clearly, he is at work. And so like Daniel, Esther asserts God's providence. Um, Daniel was explicit, right? So if Daniel is like, hey, 
Ancient of Days is going to do this. Son of Man is going to do this. All these kingdoms are going to rise, but God is sovereign over all of it, and he's working his providential plan perfect. That's explicitly clear. Esther's doing the same thing, but implicitly. Does that make sense, the difference between the two? So God is sovereign. All right, it takes place in the context of exile. Um, let me just move quickly to the overview structure. Okay, so chiasm. It's like a sandwich. Okay, and so what you have is you kind of have, you know, point. You look through these. I mean, you see it how I have in your notes. See how they mirror each other? A, and the A down below, and B, and the B down below, and C, and C, and D, and E. And so the, the book wants us to see that that central section there, right, the fall of Haman, point E, and the rise of Mordecai, that, that's actually key to the book. That's what the book has been building to. And so I'm going to move through this very quick. I have some slides, but for time, I'm just, I'm just going to move through quick. So you guys are familiar with Esther, okay? Xerxes, big-time drinker, okay? He's drunk all the time. And generally speaking, when he's drunk, actually, like, good stuff happens, which is why it's kind of funny. It's, like, ironic, because in real life, that's actually not what happens, right? But providentially, that's what the Lord is using. When he's drunk, the Lord turns it for his glory. So don't take this and be like, if I'm drunk, God will use it for his glory. No, that's not the point of Esther. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but in the book of Esther, that's what's going on, okay? Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Yes. Yes, yep, yep, yeah, same name. Yeah, big-time drinker, okay, so Vashti, he, you know, he or you guys are familiar with this, right? He orders Vashti to come out, and she says no, and he's all upset, so he's like, fine, you're not the queen anymore, and then so Esther comes in, and Esther's the lady, and then also, you have the end of chapter two, right? Mordecai saves his life, okay? That's key for later, right? This is another point. Chow makes it's kind of funny when the um, when the eunuchs come out, it's like something bad's going to happen, or it's just something ironic is going to happen. So when you're reading through, it's like, oh, eunuchs, something funny or something ironic, okay? And so the eunuchs realize, okay, you know these bad guys. Mordecai rescues the king, and then nothing happens, okay? But I want to make this note real quick. I think I have a slide here. Yeah, okay. So when in uh, chapter two, verse five. Uh, he mentions Mordecai. He's a Benjamite, okay? He's from the family of Saul, okay? Just tuck that away, okay? Mordecai in Saul's family line, okay? Then you come to chapter 3. It talks about Haman, the Agagite. Okay, and you're like, what's going on here, okay? What's going on is that in Deuteronomy 25 and also, it's actually Exodus 17, right after the Exodus, the Amalekites, um, attack Israel, and that's the account where, you know, they, they lift Moses' hands because his hands are falling down, okay? And Yahweh says there, hey, I'm going to blot out the Amalekites from under the sun. They're going to be completely done away with, okay? Come to Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you, you know, for that reason I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, when you come to Saul, Saul is told to blot out Agag, who's the king of the Amalekites, okay? And you remember, you know, it's actually a, like, really intense story, but Saul doesn't kill him. He doesn't kill Agag, and then I think it's the prophet Samuel, like, comes up, and he's like, what is this sound in my ears? And it's like all this cattle and stuff like that, and it's like, Samuel takes him there, and he just slaughters him to death, beats him down with the sword. It's like, whoa, man, Samuel, okay. Um, but anyways, that's not good. Saul allows some of the Amalekites to live, and, you know, the king of them, Agag. Okay, so when we come to Esther 3, Haman, the Agagite, oh, this dude survived. And so Mordecai is kind of set up as like the second Saul. Is he going to succeed where Saul failed? 
And Haman, at the same time, in chapter 3, he sets a plot to eliminate the Jews. And so, you know, in the immediate canonical context, that's what we have going, going on all the way back to Saul. But also, if you take whole canon, this goes back to seed of the woman and seed of the serpent, right? Haman is trying to blot out the Jews. If we get rid of the Jews, we don't have Messiah. If we don't have Messiah, we don't have salvation, and we're all wasting our time here, okay? Whoa, Esther's all of a sudden really important, okay? And so it moves on. Um, you know, Mordecai, I just got to move quick. This is awesome in, in Esther 4, uh, 13. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai saying, hey, you're not, you probably won't survive if this decree goes out. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I love this because I think Mordecai is saying, He's looking back to the Old Testament and the promises of God, and he's saying, hey, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, so the Jews will not be utterly blot out. They won't, okay? Deliverance will rise for them from another place because God is faithful. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And he's saying, hey, this could be God's providence of why he put you here. I think it's just a good example of, like, if we're just taking real quick, you know, like moral principle, like, we don't need to ask all these other questions about why, what if. We need to do the right thing until God closes the door. Just do the right thing. Do the good thing. And then if God closes the door, okay, so be it. But we trust in his sovereign plan. So and he speaks to him. This could be why you're here. I love this. At the first banquet, it just shows you how much like Xerxes, the king, is not in control because he's, he's drunk. And then Esther comes in and he's like, hey, what do you want, my love? Like even half the kingdom. Just like, that's kind of like, Dude, like, you're offering away 49.999% of everything you have. Like, it's like, dude, you're a buffoon, okay? Clearly, it's not just coincidence. I would argue it's divine favor, right? There's a chance that Esther could have been killed when she goes in. And so, he, you know, she says, come to this banquet. And then here you have the center of the book, okay? Center of the book. Um, 5, 9, 6, 14. Haman, he builds a gallows to hang Mordecai. You know, the king, um, this is, I find this really funny. I just need to mention this. Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So he can't sleep, and they're like, hey, read me something, he's like, read me something boring, like a bedtime story. And what do they go get? Like, the record of everything he's done. Like, he has a boring life. Like, he's like, read me my life story so I can go to sleep because I'm so boring. I don't know, I just think it's funny, okay? Um, and so, you know, he realizes, whoa, like, what did we do for this guy, Mordecai, who saved my life? And they're like, uh, we did nothing for him. And he's like, oh my goodness, Haman, what do you think we should do for the, the greatest guy in the kingdom? And Haman's like, well, he's obviously talking about me, and you're going to do all these great things for him. And he's like, okay, yeah, go do that for Mordecai. And it's like, uh, you know, it's just ironic, it's funny, okay? And then you have, this is key, I, and it's also funny too, but chapter 6, verse 13 this is after Mordecai's been honored, all this stuff. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Like his wife is telling him, like, dude, you're done. You're going to die. He's a Jew, and if, you know, all these covenant promises are true, you're done. And there's a quote here from, yeah, this is so good. This urgent statement, and he's going back to, you know, Mordecai's first statement, is a powerful biblical theology of the importance of the Jewish nation 
a fundamental awareness of the fact that the Jewish nation will survive because of an overarching purpose to history. When Haman's own wife tells him that he will be unable to withstand Mordecai since he is a Jew, this is the most absolute statement in the book that history has a pro-Jewish shape to it. So, I think one of the reasons why we have a pro-Jewish shape in our belief is because the book of Esther does, okay? And so, God is not done with his people. And so, even, you know, that's the center of the book. His wife is saying, you're toast, you're donezo, bro. You're, you're done. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. His deception is revealed. You know, this is funny. The king is always drunk. This is chapter 7, verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. It's like the dude who's always drunk stops drinking. Uh-oh. This ain't good. He's upset. <laughs> but Haman, said to beg, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. This is funny. As he's begging, verse 8, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? You know, it doesn't look good. And then, and then the, the eunuchs rush in, verse 9. One of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, uh, moreover, the gallows um, that uh, Haman has prepared for uh, that guy Mordecai, the, the guy who saved your life, uh, it's, it's right outside his front house. The king's like, okay, hang him on it. Like, it's just like, so, it's funny. I don't know. It's dark humor. But it's funny. It's just ironic. But it's actually divine providence. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And so the rest of the book, we're out of time. But um, throughout chapter 9, well, chapter 8, the Jews are permitted by Mordecai and the king. They can defend themselves. Um, you actually have chapter 8. I do need to mention this. Verse 17. Many of the peoples of the countries declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. People debate, is this actual genuine conversion to God's people or not? And I'm not exactly sure, but I'd probably say actually yes, that through this event that there were people who became Jews. They became part of God's people um, through this event. So they defend themselves. You have the Feast of Purim and all that stuff. You have the end. Chapter 10. Oh, no. Chapter 9 first. Um, you know, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. They strike down their enemies who tried to kill them. Clearly, divine providence is at play in this book. Chapter 10. At the very, very end, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land, on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of the power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Now, we'll talk about this next week, but... That phrase there, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? Where do you see that over and over and over? In the book of Chronicles. Over and over and over. And, you know, hey, here's what this king did. And generally speaking, it's bad. But here what you have in Esther 10, it's the exact same phrase. What's the author saying? Hey, Mordecai is actually serving like a king. He's actually done a great thing. So great that even, not even in the Jewish records, in the Kings of Media and Persia, in those records, he's recorded in there. And so it's clear that the sovereign providence of God is on display. He's protecting his people even when they can't see him. Last quote here. Um, same is true for, for us today, just bringing it in, you know, practical. God controls the ordinary means, and he uses them to bring about his will. And I think that brings us comfort and also calls us to trust in him, right? So that's Daniel and Esther. Next week, we'll wrap this up. Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, and I'll kind of do a recap of everything we've looked at real quick, and you'll be like, oh, this sets up perfectly for Christmas. It's like, yes, exactly the point. All right, you're dismissed.